You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 46, and, uh, and we'll be reading um, a more lengthy passage today. And uh, at this point, well, I'll have you stand in a moment. Um, Joseph has re- revealed himself to his brethren, and uh, they, they didn't recognize him at first because they thought Joseph was an Egyptian. It had been 22 years since his brothers betrayed him and sold him as a slave. And now he's second in command in all of Egypt. He's overseeing the distribution of food. There's a terrible famine all through the land. And so Joseph has, has revealed himself to his family. And then he starts to work on getting his father and his family, all their wives, all their children, his 11 brothers and everybody moved to Egypt. So he talks to Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh sends wagons and provisions to Canaan. And uh, last week we saw how uh, how it was unexpected, if you think about it, how unexpected it was that Jacob would have to leave the promised land. That wasn't probably in his plans. And, and yet when God, has, God does something unexpected, uh, we don't get to enjoy the benefits of the unexpected unless we submit to God's plans. And think about all that Jacob would have missed if he said, no, no, Lord, that's not my plan. I'm going to stay right here where I am. And yet it was God's plan to move Israel and all of, uh, all of the family and everybody to Egypt to provide for the family and sustain the family during the famine. Jacob would have missed out on a lot if he just said no to God's plan. Uh, he would have missed out also on seeing Joseph alive again. And we see there was a sweet reunion there in chapter 46. And so we're going to pick up our reading then at the end, toward the end of chapter 46... And then read right into chapter 47. And so I hope you took your vitamins today because we're going to be standing up for a little bit. Oh, are you ready? You need to stretch out? Okay, here we go. Let's stand. Genesis 46. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 30, 31. It says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, chapter 46, 31, Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren in my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me, and the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle, and they have been they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you, so he starts coaching them, and shall say, What is your occupation? that ye shall say, Thy servants' trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now. Both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. That's encouraging, right? Uh, The Egyptians won't be able to stand what you do. But go ahead and tell them that you are shepherds, and and we'll see why as we go. Then verse 1, chapter 47. Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, for thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan, Now, therefore, we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if any, I'm sorry, and if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father. And set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of thy years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my of my life been, 
sorry, have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with, with bread according to their families. So here's, now, now we're going to get into this section that it talks about what's still happening in Egypt. Just in case we think things are better, look what's still happening. The famine is affecting them. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered all, up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. Uh, by the way, there's only so much money can do. And we think that money is the answer to all of our problems. When you don't have anything to eat, money is not your biggest problem. Uh, look at verse 16. And Joseph said, give your cattle and I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses. And, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, we will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? And we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate." And Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, uh, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the border of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests brought he bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them at Pharaoh. ...of Pharaoh and did eat their portion with which Pharaoh gave them... ...wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said unto the people... ...behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh... ...lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. So he gives them seed to become farmers, basically... ...and it shall be come to pass in the increase... ...that ye shall, keep, that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh... ...and four parts shall be your own... For seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food of your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. Almost done. Verse 27. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen... And they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. It's a sign of an, of an oath. And deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me. And he sware unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Chapter 48. No, just kidding. No, we're not going to go on. It's a lot of reading. Uh, you know, there's something, though, about corporately reading God's word together. Uh, we, we are in an entertainment society and then we think we can only handle a few verses at a time. Uh, you should read some of the Old Testament passages where they would read the Bible for hours. And uh, you say, we just did. Well, uh, you know, this, sometimes you have to tackle a whole, a whole narrative here. And you say, well, what in the world is this about? Well, 
um, our subject today is really about Joseph's wisdom. And, and I'm calling it Win-Win Wisdom. Um, and we'll, look, we'll talk about why, but we live in a competitive world and everybody's out to win, even if it means that I win and you lose. But did you know that God wants all of us to win? And actually, there's enough of God's goodness and blessings to go around. It's possible for me to win and you to win at the same time. And Joseph knew this because he had win-win wisdom. I'd like to look at that today. And let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we pray that you bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would uh, help our hearts and minds to be open. And I thank you for those that are here, the guests and our folks alike. That you'd bless all of us, help us to see how, how this applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Some years ago, Stephen Covey, maybe you've heard of Stephen Covey, he wrote his classic book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And if you've read that book, then you know, I mean, I, I would assume anybody who's read it, it's, it, it becomes a favorite um, of most people that read it because he gives simple life principles by which to live. And one of the reasons it's so timeless, I'll call it, is because Stephen Covey operates on truths that are biblical even though he doesn't necessarily say I got these from the Bible now he refers to the Bible um, and and he has something of a biblical mindset but the reason it's timeless is because he is uh, he's emphasizing or supporting God's truth and and the truth is all truth is God's truth if it's true it came from God no matter how it's packaged. And, and one of the, the principles that Covey mentions in his book, Seven Laws of Highly Effective People, is this thought of, he says, think win-win. And the idea of that truth is that both parties involved can benefit in any given situation. Uh, for instance, if I need to sell my car and you need a reliable vehicle, we can both benefit if I sell it to you. I sell my car, you get a reliable vehicle, although I'm not sure I recommend selling vehicles to people that you know. Uh, sometimes it doesn't always work. Um, if, it, if it breaks down, then guess who they're going to blame? So, uh, or maybe in a church setting, if, if maybe we need a person to fill in for a certain ministry and fill a certain need, and you've got the need for a ministry to be involved in, which, by the way, I think that every member of Eastside should have a weekly responsibility, should have a weekly ministry that you're involved in. And if you're a member and you want to contribute, we've got places to serve. Come talk and we'll get you a place. If, if you feel a need and we have a need, that's a win-win. And that happens all the time right here at Eastside. Uh, it can happen at work. It can happen uh, in, in parenting. I mean, for instance, you know, there is a way that a parent ought to deal with their child so their child gets the lesson and, and the parent it trains the child and the child uh, is helped by it and grows up and, and becomes a, a good Christian person. But as a parent, we have to think win-win and that I've got to deal with the child in the right way if I want them to get the benefit and the blessing. Uh, I think about Brother, Brother James and, and Miss Angie Ruckman right here. Um, and these are our missionaries to Africa. They're in Ghana, West Africa, and they're home for uh, a few weeks on, on uh, furlough. We're grateful, so grateful to have them here. And, uh, they're, and so they're back for a little bit. And I think about our relationship with the Ruckmans. Uh, it is a win-win situation, meaning that Brother James Ruckman um, is called to Africa and he's called to minister to the people of Ghana, West Africa, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but, but he would tell you this too, that he can't do that on his own. In many ways, he needs the support of people behind him. And Eastside Baptist Church is the sending church for James and Angie Ruckman. And, and, and they get to fulfill their calling. We invest in their ministry with, with other churches as well. But, but they get to fulfill their calling. And we, the Bible says that when he goes out, he bears fruit to account that gets to apply to us. I mean, so we're not going to Africa, 
but we get to enjoy and reap the benefits of somebody on the ground telling people about Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that is a win-win situation. It's a win for him because he gets to do what God wants him to. And it's a win for us because all we do is support them. And yet God blesses us with fruit to our account. Man, that's a win-win. In a competitive world, it's good to be reminded that in God's economy, more than one person can win. See, your job is not to beat me. And my job is not to outdo you. See, God, we answer to God for each of us. We answer to God for what God has for us to do. And he's not comparing me with you. And he's not comparing you with me. He simply says, this is your calling. I want you to be like my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to obey me. I want you to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you jobs to do. And if you'll do that, I'm telling you, you can live a life that wins. I'm thankful that I don't have to outdo you. I couldn't outdo you. And it's not fair for you to try to fulfill my calling. No, God has enough blessings and he has enough goodness to go around in life. And he wants us all to win at life. And listen, we can help each other win if we'll think win-win. And Joseph had that kind of wisdom here. In this story, he proves that he believes God has enough blessings to benefit everybody. See, God has promised to, to bless Israel and make him a great nation... Uh, the, the nation of Israel was God's priority. They were his chosen people on earth. They represented God. But Joseph's wisdom allowed both God's people to be blessed and it allowed Egypt to be taken care of at the same time. And if you think about it, if you go back and read Genesis chapter 12, then you know that's exactly what God promised he would do. He told Abram when he called him out, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'll make of you a great nation. But not only that, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth through you. And so what, we, so what we see here is that God is blessing his people. He's taking care of Israel. But at the same time, God's blessings aren't limited just to the children of Israel. No, God has enough blessings and provision to bless those that are around Israel, thus fulfilling the promise that he made in Genesis 12. See, there's enough of God's blessings to go around. And I know I keep saying that, but I think it's good for us to understand that because sometimes in life we get to thinking about ourselves only. It's really easy for us to think that, that life is about me, life is about getting what I want, it's about meeting my needs. And you know, you see that happen all the time in life. But I, I'm going to apply it because we're here in church today. I'm going to apply it right now even just to our mindset toward church. In many churches and in many people's lives, they come to church thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Yeah, you, you better have every, all your ducks in a row. You better have everything comfortable. The pews better be soft. The temperature better be to my liking because it's all about what I'm going to get out of this today. I'm not saying that anybody in here has that mindset, but I do think that, that our church culture in modern America is becoming about the consumer sitting in the pew and we're treating it like everything is about you and everything is about pleasing you and making things comfortable for you. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but what about God? I mean, isn't it about God? Isn't it about him? And really when we come, if we have a selfish mindset, we're going to miss out on what God wants to do because our mindset when we come to church shouldn't be, what am I going to get out of this? Our mindset should be, what could I do to be a blessing to somebody else today? And if you'll come with that mindset, I'm telling you, it changes the way that you think about church attendance. It changes the way that you think about serving God. And what we need to understand is that God wants everybody to win. It's not just about us. And there will be times in our lives that God wants to use us to be a blessing to the people around us. But we're going to have to stop looking in the mirror and we're going to have to start looking around. Here's Joseph, and he has a win-win mindset. He has win-win wisdom. And I want to give you three important um, ways to have win-win wisdom as a follower of God. Okay, Sometimes it's easy to write things down, and, and sometimes my message is you have no idea what to write down. Well, today I'm going to give you a fairly easy one. Three ways to have win-win wisdom as a follower of God. 
And the first th- thought that I see in this passage is, if you want to have win-win wisdom as a follower of God, you must maintain your distinction before God. You've got to maintain your distinction Maintain your distinction before God. One of the things that gets lost, I'll show you how this works in the passage, but one of the things that gets lost in Christianity is the idea of distinction or separation. And I know that's not a popular thing to preach, um, and yet I think we need to hear it. Modern church culture has attempted to make being a Christian like joining whatever club that everybody else joins or being a part of the parent-teacher association. Christianity sometimes becomes nothing more than wearing a cross around our necks. And that may be uh, the American definition of following God, but that's not what you see in Scripture. See, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. Peter said, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. Peter called us, he said, we are peculiar people, and some of us are more peculiar than others. We are peculiar. There should be a difference. And if you're a child of God, you know, the Bible says you're a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in our efforts to fit in, with the culture, then we have lost our distinction as first and foremost representatives of a holy God. We are commanded to be holy as God is holy. And before you think that assimilation into culture is not a big deal, I want you to consider what happens here in Genesis. See, as Joseph's family came into Egypt with all their flocks, Joseph needed to work out with Pharaoh where they were going to live. But he knew it had to be presented in a certain way. Now, we all know that Pharaoh looks at Joseph as somebody that has saved their nation. He, he, he looks at him, he says in chapter 46, he calls him, uh, or chapter 45, he calls him a father and that he's a mentor. He's been a help to Pharaoh. But Joseph didn't just come around Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh what to do. Joseph still had to submit to his authority. Pharaoh was his authority. And so Joseph knew that how this all worked was really important to make sure they go through the proper channel of authority. And he tells his brothers, his family at the end of chapter 46, that Pharaoh, and I'm just going to, because it's such a long passage, some of this I'm just going to summarize. But Pharaoh, he says, when Pharaoh asks you what your occupation is, what you do, you need to tell them the truth. Tell them that you're shepherds. Now, we saw at the end of verse 34 that every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. So we might think, well, if, if I'm thinking, if, if Pharaoh asks us what we do, I don't want to say shepherds. Because if we say shepherds, and shepherds are an abomination of Pharaoh, I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. And I don't want Pharaoh not to like us, so maybe we should say something different. But Joseph says, no, be honest. He says, tell them what you are, tell them what you do. And and the reason for that is because he says there in verse 34, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen. And see, Goshen was was in Egypt, but it was outside of, of civilization. It was away from the main city. It was in a spot, in a spot that was uh, full of, uh, it was it was very uh, fertile. And green and a great place to, to take your cattle. And, and so Joseph knew they needed a spot like that. But he also knew that the Egyptians wouldn't want Israelites as neighbors. So, so he knew if we go in and we say, oh, we're not shepherds, we're keepers of animals. Pharaoh might say, well, that's not a shepherd. Oh, you can come live right next to me. But Joseph knew there needed to be some separation from Egypt and God's people. I mean, can you imagine? You think about it. Joseph's brothers have already proven they're not of the highest character. They've already proven that they don't always do right when temptation comes. Can you imagine now Joseph's brothers moving right in the middle of civilization, right next to the Egyptians with all the temptations of big city life? And not to mention the fact that the line that that the children of Israel had would someday produce Jesus Christ. 
And God wanted his line, that line to be pure and remain correct. And Judah himself, from which Jesus came, has already at one point tried to compromise that line by marrying a Canaanite woman. Joseph's looking around and he says, tell him your shepherds because he knows if Pharaoh knows their shepherds, they don't want to be neighbors with shepherds. And Pharaoh will give them their own land over in Goshen and there will be a source of, of distinction. There will be some separation. Listen, distinction is essential for God's people. As a child of God, you're called to be distinct from the world and set apart unto God. We are called to be holy. And I know it's not popular, but our words should be different. And our speech should be distinct. And our marriages should look different. And the way we speak to each other in our marriages and in our families and in our homes should be different. The way we raise our children should be set apart. The things that entertain us shouldn't be the same. Not because a child of God is better, but because a child of God has been made different. There ought to be a difference. And I want you to think about what this distinction did for Israel. Joseph takes five of his brothers to go to Pharaoh and introduce themselves and explain what they do. I, I would have loved to have been part of that process when he's picking which five. He's like, um, yeah, you're going to be doing something else. I don't trust you. I'm going to take these five. We're going to go talk to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and they present them. He presents them to Pharaoh. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any man of activity among them, make, then make them rulers over my cattle. You know, this is kind of funny, I think, in that sometimes, you know, you have an idea, but you want somebody else to think it was their idea. In some ways, that's what happens here. Joseph says, tell them that we're shepherds, so he'll give us the land of Goshen. And sure enough, Pharaoh gives him the land. And not only that, he offers them workers. Now, it's amazing. This land that they, that they settle in, it, it sets them up for a few hundred years to grow food and raise their cattle and exponentially grow as a nation. You know, in just about 400 years, God grew this group of 70 people, actually a couple less than that, uh, 66 to 70 people. He grew them from that a number to maybe, some people say, a couple of million more in 400 plus years. And you know why I believe it is? Because God's people benefit from distinction. If they had settled right there in Egypt, then they, they would not have been in that same position of growth. And listen, distinction, you may think, why is distinction important? No, listen, as we pursue holiness, God sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like his son to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is our entire purpose for existence. Understand distinction is a win for us because it puts you in the best position to grow into someone that's like Jesus Christ. But we're not just talking about win, we're talking about win-win. Distinction is also a win for those around us. You say, how is that? I mean, how is separation a, a, a help to people around us? Well, they, because they're going to look at you and they will see a difference in your life. Matthew 5, 16 says what? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is heaven. In heaven understand that distinction is your candle. Distinction is what helps you to be set apart. And distinction gives you good works that people look at and say, I want to be like that. Or maybe they might look at you and they might not like what they see. But what, I'm, what I'll tell you this, when they're hurting or they're in need and they're thinking about somebody they can go to to provide some kind of a help or comfort in their greatest time of need, they're not going to think of somebody that there's no distinction in. They're going to think about that Christian that they used to sit next to at work and the good works they saw on you and the spirit they saw on you and the good speech that they heard from you. And they're going to say, that's the kind of person that I need to go talk to right now because I have a problem bigger than me and I don't know who to ask but that person had distinction and I'm going to go talk to them about this need listen someone uh, with win-win wisdom will maintain their distinction as a follower of God it benefits you because it helps you to be more like Jesus and it'll benefit those around you that are seeking something different
Somebody with win-win wisdom will maintain their distinction before God. Second, someone with win-win wisdom will work at being a blessing to others. They're going to work at being a blessing to others. See, Joseph presents his father, Jacob, to Pharaoh. And I, I'm sure this was nerve-wracking. You know, I don't know. Uh, it's probably true for some dads, the older they get, I'm just going to say it this way, the less effective the, their filters are. Maybe your dad's, I've got a dad, he's not even 70. Sometimes I'm worried, you know. What's he going to say? What dad joke is he going to tell this time, you know? Well, Jacob's 130. I mean, his filter probably fell out a long time before this. Based on his past, we had Jacob or Joseph probably had a right to be concerned. But you know, Jacob does well. Look what it says in verse 8. Jo well, verse 7, Joseph brought Jacob his father set him, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And verse 10, and at the end of it, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out. So apparently he blesses him twice. And I love Pharaoh's question in verse 9. I like to read it with astonishment. Pharaoh uh, said, verse 8, sorry, Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old art thou? Maybe that's not how he said it. That's just how I read it, you know. You're how old? 130. Now, I'm sure he was more gracious than that. But Jacob gives a self-deprecating answer. Basically, he says, I, have, I haven't lived as, as well as my father, my, my grandfather. Few and evil have been my days. I don't know if he's being pessimistic or if he's just being humble. Uh, but Jacob takes the time to bless Pharaoh. And, and this is a really big point, okay? I want you to get this. See, we, we don't know what the blessing was. We don't know what Jacob said. Uh, but I want you to consider the circumstance. Think about this. Jacob had nothing to offer Pharaoh. Nothing. He's 130 years old. That means he can't fight. Uh, he can't rule. He can't really get things done. His energy is waning. His, his, his eyesight is probably bad. He's what we might would call, he's, we, we might say he's in his twilight years. Uh, not to mention his hands and his face reflect the sun and the dirt of a lifetime of being a shepherd, which the Egyptians already can't really stand. In, in essence, think about it. Jacob has nothing to bring Pharaoh. But what I love about Jacob, and it's true to his character the whole way through, he's not intimidated by Pharaoh, he's not self-conscious. Of course, when you're 130, you probably don't really care about much of anything. You're not intimidated, you're not self-conscious, I mean, you, it is what it is. But you know, understand this, he knows the Lord, and that's what he has. And he knows that Pharaoh could use a blessing from God. And here's this old wrinkly shepherd and he prays and blesses a pagan king. He knows how much God has blessed him. And he even as a 130 year old wants to share God's blessing with the people around him. See here's the thing. You may not have much to offer this world. But if you know the Lord you can make a difference in somebody's life. Teenagers, think about this. God wants to bless the kids at your school and he wants to bless the kids in the youth group and your friends that are around you and he just needs a vessel. And I just wonder sometimes which of our young people are going to say, I'll be the vessel. I'll be the one that, that is a blessing to the people around me. I'll be the one that makes a difference. And for you, God wants to use you to be a blessing to the people in your workplace. And who else is going to do it if not you? But listen, you've got to stop being intimidated. And you say, God has blessed me. And I want the people around me to know what kind of God that I serve. We have to stop thinking that God can't use us. Because if he can use a 130-year-old wrinkly shepherd to bless the known leader of the world. Listen, he has a plan for your life. Here's the thing, you have to decide that God's blessings are bigger than your limitations. You have to decide that even though you feel limited, and even though you don't feel like you can be a help, and you don't know what to say, and you're not sure how you're going to be received, that no, God has blessed me so much that I'm obligated to try to be a blessing to the people around me. And listen, if you'll do that, you'll get a blessing, the blessing of making a difference in somebody's life. And that's a win. And the people around you, they'll receive the blessing of becoming aware of a God that wants to bless them. And that's a win for them too. This is win-win wisdom. It's you and I saying, I don't have much to offer, but if I will simply strive to help the people around me, God can use me. 
I want to leave with nothing left. I I want every heartbeat of my chest to be, be spent following God and investing in other people. I don't want to have any regret when I'm done. I want to leave having poured myself out. Think about how God blessed both Israel and he provided for the survival of Egypt in this story. So we know, uh, I'm just going to kind of summarize some of this, um, that that Israel was blessed because Pharaoh gave them the best of the land. He gave them Goshen. All their needs were met. But we find out at the same time that the famine was really affecting Egypt still. Verse 13, and there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. So the famine is still going on, even though God's blessing his people. And, and uh, so the people keep coming, they keep, bringing, they keep bringing money to buy food, but eventually the money runs out. The money fails. And, and so the people, they come to Joseph and they say in verse 16, we're not going to read it, I'm going to summarize it. Um, and he says in verse 16, he tells them, now listen, I, the money, if it fails, then just bring your cattle, bring your animals, and we'll buy your animals, and, and then you can eat based on the food that we give you for that. Well, we're told that lasts about a year. And the next year they come back and they say, we don't have any food, we don't have any animals left. All we have is our property and our bodies. They say, and, and basically then they say, what good is our body? What good is property if we die? They say, buy us as servants. We'll be your servants and you can buy our land. And that's what Joseph does. So basically then, by the end of this story, Pharaoh owns all the land of Egypt. Joseph then spreads them out and in more wisdom, he gives them Uh, He gives them their own seed and he says, okay, now I want you to go grow your own crops and those crops can be your food and they can take care of your families. And and here's what you get. You get to keep 80% of what you grow. It's for you. 20%, one-fifth comes back to Pharaoh. That should be enough to sustain you. Uh, Isn't it amazing what kind of wisdom Joseph has here? I mean, he had wisdom to, to, to prepare for the famine. He's got wisdom in the middle of the famine. By the end of it, he's working it out that Pharaoh owns everything. And before you think, well, man, they're really taking advantage of these poor people in their, their worst condition. Look what they say to him in verse 25. And they said, thou hast saved our lives. We are eternally grateful, they say. We have to take off our cultural glasses and understand Listen, this is a life debt. They owe Joseph their life. And to them, being his servant and giving up their land, they don't begrudge it because that's better than death. So I just want you to think about this. It's a win for everybody. I mean, God blesses Israel immensely. I mean, the Bible says that he multiplies their numbers. They're multiplying exceedingly in verse 27. But it's also a win for Egypt because they survived. This survival and and the blessing of the people around us, folks, it's at stake. I want you to understand that. That's the picture going on here. That God's people, as we maintain our connection with him, he blesses us and he grows us and he makes us more like his son. But he doesn't intend for us to simply take our blessings and consume them on ourselves. He wants us to take what he gives us and be a blessing to the people around us. Because, listen, their survival is at stake. If Joseph had been selfish and said, hey, uh, you know, Israel's being taken care of, that's all that really matters. Egypt would have died and Joseph and Israel would have been fine. But Joseph knew that God didn't just want Israel to be helped. He's looking at those around them. And listen, there are people around you every day. As a child of God, God wants to use you to be a blessing to the people at work. He wants to use you to be a blessing to your family and a blessing to your neighbors and be a help to those people around you that don't have any hope. And listen, their survival might be at stake, spiritually speaking. Just like Joseph, we have to think win-win. It's not just about us. Listen, it takes work to be a blessing and you have to choose to be a blessing But when you are a blessing to other people, it's a win-win for you and it's a win-win for them. We've got to maintain our distinction and we must work at being a blessing. And third and finally, 
win-win wisdom takes place when you choose to put God first. No matter what. Here's Joseph. Let me just read the last three verses. And Jacob, verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. He's getting old. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. He's not dying in this account just yet. But he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, but I pray thee, thy, put thy, pray thee thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Here's the oath I want you to make, son. Pray, bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he makes an oath with his dad. Listen, God has blessed Jacob in incredible ways in his life. He, and he blesses Israel in amazing ways too. Think about these last 17 years of his life. So again, he comes to Egypt when he's 130. He has a sweet reunion with Joseph. And then they settle in Goshen. And the Bible says God just blessed them. I mean, their cattle were fed. Their families were fed. Their families were growing exponentially. I mean, they went from about 70 to a couple million in 400 years. And so J Jacob is just watching God do great things in his family. And I would have to think that the last 12, 13 years of his life there in Egypt had to be really good years. Joseph is second in command, so they're treating Israel right. They're separated. They have their own property. Things are going really well. And you know what Jacob might have been tempted to do? He might be thinking, you know what? Egypt's been really good to us. Egypt's been really good. I mean, think about all the blessings we have. Living in Egypt has been pretty good. I mean, uh, God is really, I mean, Egypt's really taking care of our needs. You know what he might have thought? He might have started thinking, you know what? I think I might just rather settle right here. You know, when it comes time to die, I mean, I might as well just have him bury me right here because this is a pretty good life. But, so, but, but that's not his thought process. When it came down to the end of it, he brought Joseph in and he said, now listen, Egypt's been good to us the last 17 years. He said, but I, I have not given up on God's promises. See, I know that the promised land, Canaan, that's where God really wants us. So son, promise me when I die that you'll take some time and you'll go back to Canaan and you'll bury me back where God has promised uh, the land and where God wants us to be. Listen, this is a real, a real act of faith. It'd been about 200 years since God came to Abram and promised the land and, and the experience in Canaan. Honestly, they weren't all that great. I mean, things seemed probably to be better in Egypt. But listen, Jacob maintained the right perspective. Even when Egypt seemed to be really good for him, he still looked at himself, himself as a citizen of God's country. And we must, as God's people, remain loyal first to God, even when things are good in Egypt. See, Egypt is where we live. And Egypt calls us and it beckons us. And it makes us think that in Egypt is the good life. And you look around and you watch the commercials and you see how much fun everybody's having. And you think, well, maybe this is the life. But I'm telling you this, Egypt life can't compare to the promised land. Don't get caught up in, in living for this down here. Because what God has prepared for us is far better than this. You know, see, we tend to give credit to Egypt for our blessings, but it's only because of God that we're blessed. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is neither variableness, neither shadow of turning. Listen, your job may be good, but the reason you have a job is because God has blessed you with a job, and those investments you made may be paying off. They're probably not these days, but they may be paying off, but it's only by God's grace that we have anything at all. And I'm telling you this, God blesses his people when they put him first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. So in our time and in our talents and in our treasures, does God get first place in your life? Does he get the first place in how you invest your gifts and your abilities? See, some of us, we're really good at pouring ourselves into our jobs and being a benefit at work. And yet when it comes to serving God, he's not getting anything of us. 
Does God get first place in, 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 your, in what you spend your time doing on a weekly basis? Does God get first place in, in, in how you spend your finances? If so, he has promised to take care of our needs as we put him first. But remember, this is win-win. So we win if we put God first, but it's not just about us. Jacob's decision to prioritize God impacted his ne the next generation. Think about this. So he brings Joseph in. And he says, Joseph, I want you to bury my bones in Canaan because that's the promised land. And in case you don't think that had an impact on Joseph, guess what happened about 400 years later when the children of Israel were being brought out of bondage to go from Egypt back to Canaan? Guess whose bones they were carrying? They were carrying Joseph's. So here we see that a dad's commitment to the Lord, putting God first, had some kind of impact on his son because his son looked at his dad and says, he's that committed to the promised land, to God's promised land. He said, if he's that committed, I want to be that committed. If my dad's going to be buried in the promised land, I want to be buried in the promised land too. You know, understand this. I don't think we realize this, but, but the extent that, to the extent that we put God first, it impacts how the people around us put God first. And you may think you don't have influence. Dads, listen, your children are watching you. They know if God's the priority in your life or not. They see how you arrange your work schedule so you can be here on time on Wednesday nights. And they know if you've put church over volleyball. They can see if you put church over whatever activities are going on throughout the week. Listen, they're watching us, dads. And just like Jacob and Joseph, as we put God first, our children will say, hey, I want to prioritize God like my dad did. Like moms and dads, they're watching. But it's not just moms and dads. Listen, we've got folks in here, and you may be getting up in years and thinking you don't have any more influence. But I'm telling you, here's Joseph. He's 147 years old. There may not be a lot he can do, but he can encourage the next generation to prioritize God. I'm telling you, if you're getting up in years, you still have a lot to offer the people coming behind you. I would encourage you to take somebody under your wing and pray for them and influence them and mentor them and be a blessing. Because if you lived your life prioritizing God, you have something to teach the next generation. Siblings, maybe, maybe you have younger siblings and you think they're not watching you. I'm telling you, they're watching every move you make. And they're watching if you prioritize God. And the extent that you prioritize God is going to impact how the people around you are going to prioritize God in their own lives. What I love about this win-win thought is this. God is a win-win God. See, Jesus came to the cross. And I want you to listen real close if you don't know this morning that you're saved. Jesus came to the cross for our, to die for our sins. And, and not for our sins only, but John wrote, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, his blood, it's not limited atonement, by the way. His blood is not limited to a certain number of people. No, he died for the whole world. And in shedding his blood for our sins, it gives us the opportunity to place our faith in Jesus Christ and have eternal life and be saved and get to live in heaven for, uh, forever. Yes, you talk about winning. I mean, God hasn't determined that only some people win. No, he wants everyone to win. And that's why he died for everybody. God is a win-win God. He's rooting for you to win. He wants you to win. And if you continue on this path of sin that you're on, you will lose. The wages of sin is death. That's eternally losing. But you can decide today to win. And the great thing is, after Jesus died, as we've already heard in the prayer today, it seemed like a loss when he was on that cross. But guess what happened three, day, three days later? Jesus won. He rose from the dead and he, he conquered death and he proved to us that he's capable of winning. Listen, he can win anything if he can beat death. He ultimately won and now he sits at the right hand of his father just waiting for more sinners like us to place their faith in Jesus Christ. God is a win-win God. He's enough goodness to go around. 
And maybe you need a win-win mindset. Maybe you've been so, so focused on God's blessings for you that you stop considering how God wants to use you to be a blessing to the people that are around you. God wants to use you to be a blessing, and yet we get so focused on self and selfish, but that's not win-win. You know, that's actually lose-lose. See, we lose because God won't bless us when we're selfish and self-absorbed, but also it's a loss because those around us don't get to experience the goodness of God that he wants to give through us. How's your, so win-win, how's your personal distinction? How's your holiness? Do you find yourself attached to the world more than the Lord? You're not only limiting God's blessings in your life, you're hiding your light from souls that need a savior. And spiritual survival is at stake. Another question, how hard are you working at being a blessing? Don't assume that your limitations mean God can't use you. As a matter of fact, in my experience is, the more limited you are, the more God can use you. Because you're not depending on yourself to be a blessing. All you have is what he can offer. If he can use Jacob to bless Pharaoh, he can use you. Have you been putting God first or has he become an afterthought? See, the life that wins prioritizes God in every way. Is he first? Christian, is there somebody in your life you're struggling to work with or forgive? I mean, win-win. It, it gets hard sometimes. Well, God is just as interested in them winning as he is you winning. And maybe you need to humble yourself and think, no, win-win. If God thinks win-win, I can think win-win in this situation. Maybe this morning you need to be saved. Jesus Christ came so you can win. Why would you keep losing? Nobody likes to lose. Well, eternally speaking, you can win. Win-win wisdom means you desire for everyone to experience God's goodness, like Joseph. But you're going to have to step outside of yourself and recognize that God wants to use you to be a blessing, just like Joseph. Maybe this morning it's time for God's people to think win-win. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.